All right, all right. Welcome to the Cavus Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavus Ships Podcast is brought to you by GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company offering unparalleled power and propulsion for ships from the biggest combatants to the smallest, fastest patrol boats. GE's propulsion solutions are ready for the next generation of sea power. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash marine. And by HII. HII is the largest producer of undersea unmanned vehicles in every class, making transoceanic missions possible. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Coming up. Should the U.S. Navy reorganize its fleets in the Pacific Ocean to counter rising Chinese threats? We'll talk with a noted China and Pacific military analyst about why that could be a good idea and about recent notable developments in the Western Pacific. But first, a look at this week's naval news. The Chinese amphibious assault ship Hainan led a task group on what the Chinese call a Far Sea Exercise in the South China Sea and Western Pacific, multiple Chinese media outlets reported this week. Hainan left Zhangjiang, China, in late January to begin the month-long cruise. The destroyer Hohat, frigate Lezhou, supply ship Chaganhu, accompanied the Hainan on the mission. It was the first time Chinese media said that the assault ship had carried out such a long-ranging operation, which covered more than 9,000 nautical miles. The Hainan is one of three 40,000-ton Titan 075 assault ships, all of which have entered service since 2021. The Iranian light frigate Dana and sea-based ship Macron were finally allowed to enter Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, February 27th, after having been denied entry for about a month. Several nations, including the U.S. and Israel, protested Brazil's granting permission for the ships to enter. The two ships are in the midst of a planned round-the-world cruise. The aircraft carrier USS Gerald R. Ford got underway from Norfolk March 2nd to begin a CompuX composite training unit exercise with carrier Air Wing 8 and her strike group. The exercise is the final pre-deployment test before the Navy's newest aircraft carrier at long last begins her first full-fledged overseas deployment in a few weeks. The French carrier Charles de Gaulle returned to Toulon March 3rd to complete a 108-day Mission Antares deployment that stretched into the Indian Ocean. A number of NATO ships and aircraft, including from the United States, joined the de Gaulle's task group for various periods during the deployment. In new ship news, the French logistics support ship Jacques Chevalier was delivered to the French Navy March 3rd from Naval Group at Saint-Nazaire. The first of four 31,000-ton support ships will be based in the Mediterranean at Toulon. And in San Diego on March 1st, the expeditionary sea-based ship John L. Caney, ESB-6, was delivered to the U.S. Navy from General Dynamics, NASCO. Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro announced February 28th that the new Virginia-class submarine, SSN-808, would be named John H. Dalton, honoring the former U.S. Navy Secretary in the 1990s. Dalton was also a 1964 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. The announcement came a day after Del Toro renamed the cruiser USS Chancellorsville CG-62 to become USS Robert Smalls, honoring a Civil War hero who, as a slave, commandeered the Confederate steamer Planter to turn the ship over to Union forces. 
Chancellorsville was named for the 1863 Battle of Chancellorsville, a Confederate victory. Notably, the U.S. Army already has a logistics support vessel named for Smalls. The move to rename the Chancellorsville, planned to leave active service no later than 2025, makes the first time since the U.S. Navy began building steel cruisers in the 1890s that one of the ships bears a person's name rather than a city or battle. And in old ship news, the U.S. Coast Guard medium endurance cutter Decisive, WMEC 629, was decommissioned March 2nd at Pensacola, Florida, having been in service since her first commissioning in August 1968. Built by the Coast Guard's only shipyard at Curtis Bay, Maryland, the Decisive served for nearly 55 years. Bravo Zulu, well done indeed. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right, moving to the discussion portion of the show, we are joined this week by retired Navy Captain Brent Sadler, now a senior research fellow for Naval Warfare and Advancement Technology in the Center for National Defense at Heritage. Brent, welcome to the Cavish Ships Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no, it's great to have me on tonight. So, Brent, you uh, you have a robust background, both in uh, naval and maritime issues, but particularly dealing with the Pacific. And that's one of the things that we uh, wanted to have you on to talk about. 26-year Navy career, numerous operational tours uh, on, on nukes, uh, nuke-powered submarines. You know, you've been all over uh, personal staffs, um, you know, did a tour as a, as a naval attache in Malaysia. Using the lens of all that experience, as you look out to the Pacific, what jumps out at you? And I know that's a bit of a loaded question, and we could probably talk for 30 minutes on that, but what are the big things that pe- that maritime experts or people with maritime interests should should pay attention to? Oh, absolutely. So so there hasn't been too many surprises for me. Like the last 10 years have been like watching a, a train wreck in slow motion. And, and what I mean by that is we've known what the Chinese, the Chinese have been really transparent what their goals are and how they're going to go about doing it. And so they've been following their script, but they've been doing it at a pace that we just haven't, it's kind of just been happening. And, and I think in the last few years, China has, under Xi Jinping has gotten very aggressive uh, and much more confident. So in the last year, it's really stark. So if you just look at the number of aircraft and ships that they keep around Taiwan, that's one. The language that they use, the so-called wolf warriors up until maybe about the last few months, have been really aggressive with language backed by economic and military presence that's a lot more forward, a lot more adventurous than we've seen from the Chinese Communist Party uh, until like the last few years. Now, the, there is there has been some change in the Chinese posture. I think the COVID zero policies have kind of been like a little bit of a tonic for them to wake them up to, to maybe they're not 10 feet tall, uh, but they still are very, very confident. And so that's the thing that that I focus in on is I think the clock is speeding up for a potential showdown. This is this is in reference to, of course, the Davidson window. It doesn't mean they're going to invade, but it certainly means they're confident to try to test us kinetically maybe in a measured way. And I'm not sure we're ready for that. Let's talk a little bit more about that. And, and then we'll throw it to um, my partner, uh, Chris Cavis. Um, where would you put us in the Davidson window? I, I, I mean, you, you know, if, if in terms of, you, you know, are we still towards the front end? Are we in the middle? Or do you believe we're, we're towards the back end as, you know, maybe Davidson's initial forecast would, would have us, uh, you, you know, just based on the amount of time? It, does that still hold true? 
Yeah, I think everything still holds true. It was never a specific date. It's more like a window and a window of where the Chinese have maximum advantage. And that's another longer discussion, but it basically is still around 27 to 28 time frame, And then it starts to drop off rapidly. And you're seeing stuff that, you know, people are starting to pick up on that the Chinese also see things that way, that this window of opportunity is really this decade. Um, but it's been two years, almost to the date that Davidson actually made, uh, testified on the Hill and, and this exchange with members in the Senate that said 2027 is likely the Chinese going to test us. So we're two years into this and there hasn't been a whole hell of a lot of progress made. So I would say we're still on the front end, but the Chinese are in the middle to the later middle part uh, of that trajectory. So we're behind in the race. So when people say we need to pace the Chinese, uh, we haven't done that. Right. They, they, do, have they caught us? Are they ahead of us in, in terms of that pace? Where, where do you put them? Uh, where it matters, they're ahead of us. Um, but we still have one kind of like ace up our sleeve. We have a lot of partners in the region. Uh, we have a lot more options that they can't anticipate. So they're unsure. And that uncertainty is actually probably more what's holding them back than just the numbers of our military assets that include ships, of course, and even our more advanced capabilities in certain niche areas. I mean, uh, they, they are ahead of us in shipbuilding. They're ahead of us when it comes to missile technology. But we do have them when it comes to missile defense. But again, that really doesn't deter them too much when you got the numbers and all you got to do is basically get across the Taiwan Straits and survive long enough to basically wait us out. So Brent, uh, Kavis here. So the, you know, you know this, this whole thing with the Davidson window and you've been watching for 10 years and we've all been watching for 10 years and more and more. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you know, to some people, it's pretty apparent what the Chinese are doing. They're doing it right in front of everybody. There's yeah. this deniability thing going on, a denial, sense of denial all over the place. People see what's happening, but okay, are you going to do anything about it? Well, I think we have time. Well, I don't know if it's happening yet. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, you really, like, you, you're wondering what is it really going to take? Yeah. Uh, failing, failing, you know, kinetic action, bang, bang, they're going to invade something. Um, I'm happy. Uh, I've been advocating things like uh, media embarks for a long time. Mm -hmm. And this is, Aside from the political considerations, there was also the, that darn pandemic, which uh, stuck its own problems in there. But finally, just in the, in, in the last month or so, um, the Navy has has opened this up. And we've had reporters out on the, on the Nimitz, the carrier Nimitz, who's deployed right now. Um, it was a whole whole uh, little group of them that got on in uh, Singapore and talked about here we are. Of course, soon, as soon as you leave Singapore, you're in the South China Sea. Here we are in the South China Sea. Uh, Nora O'Donnell from CBS was just out there last week uh, broadcasting live. So 60 Minutes is about to do a big thing on the Navy and the Navy's presence out there. But, you know, as CNN, they, they allowed a CNN crew to go on a P-8. And, you know, having done this sort of thing myself in the Middle East, um, you know, it, it, this is seeing is believing. And, it, you know, you let the media tell your own message. Just put just let them go. And the Chinese will do what the Chinese are going to do. And they're doing it. And everybody's going, oh, my God, there's, you know, listen to this stuff, um, whether they're challenging the PA, they're they're tailing the carrier, all these things. Um, in terms of awareness, yeah. you know, getting people to really put resources behind this, to really turn to, uh, you know, where do you think we are? Is it starting? Yeah. Is this the first element that gets better? By the way, this, you know, you can say all you want about Congress, but, you know, people vote for people in Congress. 
And if Congress is going to do something, they have to have the support of the electorate, or at least a significant element of it. So yeah. it, where do you see some of these? Are you hopeful for this? Or does it make a difference? Does it make a difference at all? Yeah, no, this is this actually is an outstanding uh, topic to kind of drill into. The last two years, I mean, so my father was a budgeteer, grandfather was involved in government and military before. Uh, and I had actually go back and ask him, how many times in their living memory, going back to the 60s, has a president's budget been submitted to Congress for defense and for Congress to say, thank you, no, here's more? And that hadn't happened. There's one sort of pseudo case in 93. Uh, and that's really a fight up thing, didn't really count. But the last two years, Congress, and I think this is indicative of a, of a bipartisan consensus that I think is still holding, that we have under underfunded our military dangerously and that we need to catch up in order to continue to deter. And if we're if we get into a, a, a gunfight with the Chinese to have any hope of actually staying in there for the long haul. So I think that consensus is holding, uh, but you got to keep hammering it. I think the the media going out there and telegraphing back. And, and it's not just English media. It's it's right. it's also in the Philippines. It's a uh, Chinese language. You know, there is more than just American reporters or English reporters or Aussies going out there. It's it's more widespread. And that needs to continue because you got to keep hammering that message. And I think also importantly, I think the American public. I mean, I think the consensus and again, Ameri it's the voters that matter. I think this administration said, hey, our foreign policy is our domestic policy, which means that the Joe the voter doesn't see it this way, that China's a threat, then they're going to walk away. And there was one thing that did cause me some concern uh, up until the big, big balloon issue with the Chinese uh, spy balloon flying over the United States, that there seemed to be some weakening in the administration that they wanted to go back to some more cooperative engagement kind of posture. And the Chinese... At the same time, we're coming off their COVID zero, trying to do a uh, a new campaign to try to make them look like they're a lot friendlier, not so threatening, but they didn't really change anything, quite frankly. And it looked like this administration was about to take the bait. And I don't think if they had even gone down that road that the American public or Congress would have supported it. But the balloon was yet another wake up call that we're not ready to, nor are the Chinese ready to kind of come back to some cooperative arrangement. So in that respect, it seems like, you know, we're there. But I only worry that the budget, if this administration submits another budget that is not dealing in reality, yeah, I'll be I'll I'll be concerned. Right. I, I think I think you're right. I, I would agree with that. There's been frankly bipartisan bicameral support for this for years. Yeah. Um, if, if if you know so it's not, it really isn't a political issue. It's um, the will will be there. If you if you ask for it, they might give it. So why don't you just go ahead and ask for it? Um, yeah. You 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 just um, put a different uh, put a different take on the U.S. Navy's organizational situation mm. for responding to China. Uh, you put a report out about a month ago called "Want to Read an Effective Maritime Campaign Against China Requires a New Fleet Centered Approach." You'd like to yeah. reorganize some of the Navy's major fundamental organizations yeah. uh, going on in the Pacific. What are you talking about? What, what would be the point of this? Well, well the first thing, so I, I'm, I've been arguing and, and I kind of, I side with uh, Ambassador Braithwaite when he was SECNAV, he came out with this idea of First Fleet, kind of centered down in Southeast Asia. And you can argue how, you know, you, you're not going to snap your fingers and have a, an, another seven fleet size First Fleet material, materialize overnight. You, it's, you use what you've got 
there already is a footprint in Singapore. So the idea is that you would grow out of that, but you'd add a fleet structure, you know, the planning, the management. Right now, they're, it's all seven fleet based out of Yokosuka. And there's a lot going on in Northeast Asia and a lot of alliances that they got to manage. Having been the flag lieutenant out there, having operated in the Westpac, uh, that, that's a tough job just for the staff as they've got right now. So give extra resources in a structure, in a, in a first fleet centered in the South China Sea area. Uh, that's one thing. The other is, so that's just get more resources to where it matters. And that's one of the decisive theaters in the competition with China in the day-to-day counterinsurgency at sea, which I, you know, I love Hunter Steyer's work on this. But there's another issue that's going on and why I wrote the paper, and that is the fleets are being tasked to carry out joint COCOM requirements that sometimes are conflicting or overlapping. And it's basically fleets that are structured along COCOM lines, which are terrestrial, they're land landbound. They're not really taking full advantage of an ocean systems approach. And one example, the most obvious is the Indian Ocean and our big strategic partner, India, looks at that entire ocean as one area of operations. And, and it's a system. Uh, we look at it through three lenses, AFRICOM, CINCOM, and Indopaycom. So if the fleets are going to be your tools for exercising or executing a, a global campaign, well, give that fleet, you know, one fleet to rule them all in the Indian Ocean so that you can balance and coordinate in a coherent way the demands of those three COCOMs. So that's one thing. Make the fleets reflect the realities of the oceans, not the COCOM's reality uh, in a terrestrial way. Then the the last one is, it's a little bit further, it's back at the Pentagon. It's the way that we allocate forces to COCOM requirements. This is the global force management, the GFM process. Um, You do this, it's not going to change that. It's not going to break it, more importantly. But you basically add in a step there where the COCOM say, and having been in many of these tanks and op depths tanks, for the GFM process, I'm intimately familiar with the horse trading that goes on both from a COCOM and from a service. So the idea is, all right, you figure out all your requirements, then you, rather than assign it to the COCOMs, fleet assets to the COCOMs, you assign the naval elements to include Coast Guard on deployment to the numbered fleets that then execute the COCOM requirements for that for that plan. So it adds in, an, it just it's just a slight tweak on an existing process that you really kind of get at a Goldwater Nichols Act problem, but you do it without with just manipulating and changing the current uh, processes and joint staff. So it's three pieces all in that paper. But if I had to pick one, get me a first fleet, please. I guess, you know, when, when, when uh, Secretary Braithwaite suggested that. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I mean, he was uh, not certainly not secretary for, for a very long time. So. That's right few months um although i wish he was still choosing the ship names today Um, that's another topic (laughs) uh oh um but you know this idea the first fleet i have to say i i that that came off to me as not not the greatest idea and you you worry about um overlapping areas of responsibility Uh, obviously there's only there's only a certain number of assets so It doesn't. It doesn't mean you're going to have more ships or more aircraft or more people, for that matter. Mm-hmm. It just means it's, it's different. Sta- it's a different staff. The Navy's played with this idea from time to time uh, about uh, you know confusing the Chinese because we'll have different staffs and they won't know what their style is and they'll mm-hmm. surprise them. So they sort of played with this a few years ago, 
um, having Third Fleet, which is based in San Diego, yeah. California-based Third Fleet, retain operational control of ships that were forward deployed to the Western Pacific. Well, normally, nominally, yeah. they would uh, have chopped to the Seventh Fleet, based in Japan. Yeah. Um, that area, you know, you think all these times in history where people were communi communications were not the best, and people yeah. did not know that other assets, their own you know, allies themselves, the same service. Mm -hmm. were in the area, um, did not know that they were there, uh, could not use them, um, you know, just, yeah. just a, a bad allocation of forces, and it broke down. We've, we've exploited it when the, when the other side, when the enemy has done that, that sort of thing. That's, yeah. I guess that's what, what bothers me there, is if you put a first fleet out in, based in Singapore or wherever, in the, in the traditional seventh, century, seventh fleet area, Mm -hmm. um, how do you how do you break that off? Do you have this? I mean, ships keep chopping from one to the other. Who's in charge? Who's in command? Yeah, so no, no. So you know, I've, so I haven't operated in all these areas and in at Paycom and worked with Pack Fleet a lot. Um, Pack Fleet still has that role. It's still the component command, and and the first fleet would be you know one of his fleets. So Pacific Fleet would actually get first, third, and seventh fleet, and the normal processes and the coordinations between the COCOM. Uh, his component and the number of fleets would remain the same. It's just what you do is you take that squadron. There's a squadron that's based there, the MSC ships. Uh, you might take one of those and repurpose it. You've already got Comlog Westpac there. You'd only add a small three-star staff at first, and you take the, the regional uh, engagement and operations folks from up in Yokosuka. You're talking a handful of folks, and you move them out of Yokosuka, and you move them into Singapore to help the, the operational planning and the exercise planning with the partners in that region. So you, you basically bring them closer to where they're going to have to engage. And that distance is not insignificant. Um, but you also, you untether them from all the demands of Seven Fleet in Northeast Asia. So I think you'd have a, a much more focused. Uh, of course, when you do something new, there's going to be some coordination that has to happen, a lot more adult supervision at first, especially when you're looking at the line between Taiwan and northern Luzon, because that's where one of the fleet the lines ostensibly could be. And then, of course, if you do this in concert with expanding Fifth Fleet to be the major, almost all of the Indian Ocean, there's a new line there at the entrance to the Straits of Malacca and, of course, the Suda Straits and, you know, where does the line go uh, does who do, who has Australia? And my my su suggestion on that is that'd be first fleet. And that also kind of rears up the AUKUS question. If you want to get into that, mm. who's going to be kind of the operational kind of assistant or overlord of that? And maybe this kind of help you get two shot, two birds with one stone there. Um, but the other thing is I'm not saying that this that this fleet would have a huge headquarters in Singapore. Ideally, you take one of the e EPFs that were used. Uh, repurposed back in 2018 by Seventh Fleet as a flagship. So already proven concept. There are limitations, but you take one of those ships, you repurpose it as a flagship. You for could first use EPF, yeah. a high speed high speed transport, small small ship. Yeah, as a yeah. flagship. Yeah, Admiral Sawyer did it uh, while the Blue Ridge, his flagship, was in uh, extended availability, and so he used it. Granted, it's kind of a peacetime. I understand this is a different kind of dynamic, but I would say when you look at having been the flag lieutenant on the Blue Ridge for a couple of years, um, yeah, survivability, if you want to get into survivability and damage control, we can have that discussion, but 
you know, that ship is mobile. Maybe it's not operating. It certainly wouldn't be operating up inside the Chinese skirt. It'd be down further south and probably more engaged with the Australians, probably more engaged with Palau and some of the other places further afield. But that's where he would be centered. And his mission would be build up exercise, good operational interoperability, uh, and start getting access to places that if a war goes down, you're going to want to be able to resupply, do some limited battle damage so you can get the ships to a place that they can be fixed up and get back into the fight quickly. Uh, right now, that familiarity, that access is still, there's a lot there that needs to happen, I think. Let's switch gears a little bit. Um, we're a week away from the administration releasing the FY uh, 2024 budget request. Um, and so if you were a betting man or a wishing man or somewhere in between, um, you, you know, what, what do you hope to see in that budget to account for the environment that you talked about and some of the needs that you and Chris were just going back and forth over? Yeah. So the first thing, just like, you know, you know, all things are enabled by money, but really it's the specific line items. You know, what what is Congress or what is the president asking to buy? Uh, but the top line is a good indicator. And the only insight that I've had, the rumors I'm hearing is, you know, it's going to be above inflation rate. I'm like, which inflation rate are we talking about? Is it the real one or is it some fanciful lower one that's really still a cut? Uh, and I'm not sure that just matching or slightly exceeding inflation is adequate. For the top line to get the kind of things that we need. We need to do more in the PSYOP and the shipyards. I mean, that's underestimated. I mean, it's pretty acknowledged, I think, by all sides that a $20 billion over 20 years is not fast enough and it's not enough for how much bone that we've cut out of our industrial base, the, the public shipyards, so four. Um, so that'd be one. I mean, the top line's got to go up significantly higher. I don't think I'm going to be happy with what I see because I don't think it's going to be enough to just address even the PSYOP and the shipyard requirements. And, you know, you'd really make my Christmas come early if if someone there was, you know, the beginnings of a fifth public shipyard, but no one's talking about that, you know, seriously. So I'll probably be disappointed. And the last one, which, you know, I'll, I'll just throw it out there is uh, it'd be great if we probably try to look at trying to break out shipbuilding, Navy shipbuilding from the NDA and get like a modern Naval Ship Act so that we can focus in on a la like a laser on getting some predictability, getting the shipbuilders, you know, to take more risk on. But in order for them to take on more risk, we got to give them more money up front so they can hire the workers, start training like the high end ones, like the welders, the pipe fitters that we need and making capital investments that because the budget, you know, you're never really sure one year to the next what this what an administration's priorities are going to be. Get the money up front make the purchases in a giant block buy in a naval act and get all the risk over to the shipbuilders so we can start focusing in on and following delivery of assets on time. I, I agree with all, all three of those things. Um, I absolutely agree with. My only concern um, is that we may be too late for mm. that type of stuff. Um, yeah. And that, you know, this may be the fit up um, the future year defense plan that the next five years are going to be critical and that if we're not cranking out things that we can use today, yeah. um, you know, we, we may be too late. Th thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, let me try. Let me try this on, on you. Uh, so you asked me earlier, like about where are we in the window? I'd say 10 years ago, it was like, hey, you could take minor adjustments to course and speed. Uh, but then as you get closer to collision, you got to really take aggressive action. 
we're in the situation where we got to go, you know, all back full th- hard over on the rudder. And this administration's not doing that. It doesn't seem like they got that sight picture yet. Um, so what's really important is to try, like they did in the 30s, you know, buying floating dry docks to say, all right, we know we're not going to get what we need. And we know even if we did, it's too late to build it in numbers to be meaningful in a, in a war fight. So what can we do? What kind of investments can we set so that we can sustain the fleet in a fight? Floating dry docks. I would say we, we're there again. We need those. The other is building out the industrial base. So if you give the demand signal, um, here's some numbers that matter. It takes two years about to bring on and certify new suppliers, you know, second, third tier suppliers. So two years to do that. Uh, it's going to take you three to five years to grow industrial, like shipyard industrial base. So this is the precision machinery, training the, the exquisite skills that you need. If you're going to build more, if you're going to create a new line of nuclear submarine production, it's going to take you three to five years. Um, we're already inside the end of that. So at best, by giving a, a huge like naval act, which you can at best do, is you can then set in place the industrial base and the workers that you're going to need should China decide to take us on 2027, 2028 timeframe. Uh, you're not going to have the ships you need to end the fight quickly, sadly. It's going to be a prolonged fight because we just have not made the investments to build the fleet we need to fight a quick fight. We're in a long fight, unfortunately. Before Chris closes it out, I'll, I'll ask you, I'll, I'll close on this. You, you, you know, mentioned about the administration, certainly understand your concern with this administration, whether it was the Trump administration or the Biden administration, I would say my bigger concern has been with the Navy and mm. the Navy's sort of lack of a coherent plan and a um, when the seemingly the White House and elements of Congress in the last administration were trying to get the Navy to do these things, they were very reluctant. Mm-hmm. Are, are you starting to see the Navy get on board with where people like you and others want them to go or think that the broader maritime community needs to go? Or are they going to be you know, mm-hmm. sort of the, the albatross uh, uh, you, you know, around uh, the neck of Congress? Yeah, I mean, I, there, I have moments where I see from this, this sec, you know, Carlos Del Toro, the current secretary of the Navy, where it looks like he's going to like, you know, push on the gas and go forward. Things like the VLS reload at sea, you know, 20 years to the, you know, you know finally we're getting that, a secretary to get focused on it, but but not enough overall, uh, quite frankly. So I'm I'm still hesitant. I'm optimistic, but not we're, I'm not seeing the kind of strong leadership that's needed. I mean, we're in a situation where you can't just be like a John Lehman. You got to be like a John Lehman 1.5 times. Uh, and it's a tough challenge. Um, I don't know. Time will tell. I just don't think we're, we're I'm not seeing the kind of leadership uh, from Navy right now. And that's political leadership is really what matters. Right. Um, CNO can help and he's probably helping quietly in the background. So uh, there are some indication that that's the case, at least when it comes to DDGX. But importantly is Congress. And again, like the thirties, it was, a, it, it took folks in political leadership in the white house and in Navy and in Congress to get what we got in the thirties and lead up to world war II. And that was just barely good enough. Um, I think we have Congress, we might have department of defense. I don't think we have the white house. And th- I'm not saying that like disparaging. I'm just saying, I'm not sure that their worldview right now sees the problem the same way. 
I would have to agree with that, but I, but I, we could probably talk about the, the the causes for that and what's really what the dynamics are for quite a while. I mean, we're really yeah. we're, we're we're looking for some naval leadership somewhere, anywhere, and it's not on the hill. It's not it's non-existent on the hill. The White House isn't doing it. The Navy is not really making its case for it. Meanwhile, folks like us are going, come on, let's go. We got to 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 go. Somebody somewhere has got to wake up. I, you know, there's, there's an awful lot of days I wake up and I still miss John McCain. But there, there is no factor on the Hill, any party, yeah. any house. And I don't see any candidate that wants to do it. It's got to come from somewhere else. Yeah. But at some, at some was, point, there's going to be a wake up call. Yeah, the, the language, the language on this Congress has got me a little bit worried uh, on the House side. Um, but when you engage the staffers and when you when you actually kind of some of the members, it it's I'm more optimistic that they'll get to the right answer. It's like, dude, do due diligence, ask tough questions. Yeah. But the strategic reality is still very dangerous. So um, yeah, I'm, 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 I have to I have to admit, haven't haven't. Uh, been around Congress virtually my whole life. Um, yeah. That it's, I, I'm, I'm tired of this narrative that you know behind the scenes people are talking reason and all this stuff. Well, I tell you what, you need to yeah. do that out loud. You need to, all of your children need to get out loud and start acting like adults, and maybe Amen. one. So, all right, folks, that's all. That's all we have time for. That was a pretty darn good discussion. Our guest has been uh, Brent Sadler, retired Navy captain. He's a great analyst on uh, Asia and Pacific affairs. And we really appreciate having you on, Brent. Thank you for having me. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. And now Mr. Cervello with some thoughts about how to look at the defense budget. On March 9th, the Biden administration will release its fiscal 2024 budget request. As is normally the case, DOD will spend the afternoon of the 9th going service by service, diving into the numbers and connecting plans and programs to their national security and defense strategies. Typically, the discussions led by defense officials and members of the media center around money, increases, decreases, millions and billions. You know the game. This year, however, I challenge our listeners to try and move beyond the dollars and decimals and think in terms of time. People in and around the Pentagon always cheer when the top line goes up and more money is allotted to their programs, but seldom are public conversations about how the money increases or decreases the time of potential conflict the focus of those budget debates. Even a trillion-dollar defense budget is of little value if the warfighting capability and capacity is too late to prevent or, if needed, prevail in the impending conflict. As we discussed with Brent, the next two to four years are critical to our ability to deter and, if needed, defeat China in high-end competition. Without pandering, we are blessed with an intelligent and influential audience that regularly speaks with and moves decision makers across government. Together, we need to make the congressional and media debates about more than puts and takes. We need to look at each investment and decide if it will have a positive impact on competition over the next fit up. Obviously, we can't abandon future planning but we need to think hard about what investments will yield immediate and short-term benefits. I hope to see investments in readiness, workforce, and supply chain protection. 
I hope to see munitions and incentives to move programs currently underway into warp speed so that we can produce more now and learn where wartime adjustments will be needed. It has become very fashionable to label oneself a fiscal conservative or a budget hawk. I yearn for the days when we see time just as valuable as we currently see money. I promise you that every moment saved or needed programs sped up will result in casualties prevented and conflicts deterred. Thanks, Chris. Excellent points. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Maradin and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavaliers podcast is sponsored in part by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. And by GE Marine, a GE aerospace company offering unparalleled power and propulsion for ships from the biggest combatants to the smallest, fastest patrol boats. GE's propulsion solutions are ready for the next generation of sea power. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash marine. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. And bye-bye. <laughs>